1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Let's get started. A lot of ground to cover on today's program, and it's one of those eclectic shows. Some really serious topics, some lighter topics. Let's get started. Uh, Before we get to three big things, I do have a couple comments on the breaking news story. Within the last half hour or so, the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office has issued criminal charges against three employees at the Milwaukee County Jail in connection with the death of an inmate that happened in April of 2016. guy's name was Terrell Thomas. You may remember that this was the subject of an inquest, um, and at the conclusion of all the testimony, the inquest jury and inquest juries are advisory. The inquest jury recommended charges against seven jail employees. The district attorney's office, um, again, is under no obligation to do anything other than to you know consider that and the district attorney's office apparently decided that they were going to go ahead and issue criminal charges against three of the seven people that were named before you criticize the district attorney's office here and say well why didn't they charge all seven um you you have to keep in mind that these inquest juries are these are directed by the prosecution um, you, you don't have defense attorneys arguing, you know, reasonable doubt. And the question at the inquest jury is, is, is there probable cause to believe a crime was committed? Um, any responsible prosecutor is going to look at this and say, well, all right, it's not just a question of probable cause to bring a charge. It's a question of, is there a basis to get a conviction? And in this case, the district attorney's office apparently decided that there was only enough evidence uh, to warrant bringing charges, at least at this point in time, against three of the jail employees. And what it appears, at least as to two of the three they did, was they went and they focused on the in on the employees who had the most direct contact with the guy who passed away. Now, if, if you remember the story, April of 2016, this Terrell Thomas is, is, he is in custody and he's acting out, I guess would be the best way to describe it. He, he's in the jail, he plugs his toilet and causes it to flood. So what happens is they they move him. So he's a problem inmate. They move him from one cell one cell to another cell. And I think that there was evidence presented indicating that he was having mental problems at the time as well. So they they move him from one cell to another after he has caused his first cell to to flood. What happens then is that one of the supervisors directs one of the jail employees turn off the water to the guy's new cell because they don't want him flooding the, the cell, essentially, which you can you can kind of understand. So that's why they take this. So they turn off the water to the cell. Well, they never turn it back on. And, um, you know, there's... There's questions about, you know, did they report, was anybody else told that the water to this guy's cell was turned off? And I think the conclusion is not really. There was a notation made on some dry erase board, but this was never communicated to following um, members of following shifts that the guy's water had been turned off. And then what is, I think, amazing to most of us is that it, it just stayed that way for for a week. 
and, and ultimately the man's in distress. He's laying on the cell floor. Other inmates are apparently saying this guy needs help. And because he was a problem in, a problem prisoner, um, I think people just don't look in on him, and he ends up dying of dehydration a week later. And then they find out that the guy hadn't had water in his cell. The um, other person that was charged was a supervisor in connection with this case, and the charges against her, it, it essentially alleges that um, she lied to I- investigators. There, there was a videotape of all this, and the allegations are that um, she had somebody review this tape early on, you know, and, you know, it was apparent then that there were the, the water had been turned off and things like that. And she was not forthcoming um, when there was an investigation being conducted as to what happened here. So that's the basis of the charges against her. So you never you never like to see people in law enforcement get charged with with uh, with crimes. At least I, I don't. But in this particular case, if the facts are as alleged, it certainly is deserved. Being being a guard in a prison or, you know, working in a jail is a very, very difficult job. It's just it is a thankless job. You, you know, are, in my opinion, especially uh, like in the state prison system, you are grossly underpaid for what you do and what you have to put up with. So I understand all that. You know, you're dealing with people who are dangerous or mentally ill, who don't want to be there, who will act up. It is a thankless job. At the same time, when people are in custody and when people are taken into custody, you being us, that the taxpayers, the state, you assume responsibility for their care. And I understand that that's difficult sometimes when, again, you have the prisoners who are acting up and causing all the problems. But at the same time, you know, once you take somebody's liberty away, you know, they are, I think, entitled to, I don't know, certain basic sort of things, including the fact that if you've got somebody who's mentally disturbed, you don't turn off the water to the person's cell and leave it turned off for the better part of a week with nobody checking on that person. Does it strike me as being okay to turn off the water for a little bit? Yeah, it, it does. But after that, you got to turn the water back on. And if it turns out that he's going to act up and do something, then you got to move to plan B, whatever plan B might be. But you can't simply expect a guy to be in a jail cell without water, without running water for the better part of a week, without you making other arrangements to provide him with liquids. Just saying. So it's taken a while. This inquest jury was several months ago. District Attorney's Office apparently gave it a lot of thought. They've issued charges against three of the seven people that charges were recommended against. It'll be interesting to see if more charges are forthcoming. All right. We start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Story number one. Has President Trump screwed up when it comes to allegations of spousal abuse? Now, last Last week, the story was how one of their pretty much top advisors, a guy named Rob Porter, who was viewed as a rising star in the White House, um, who was, and like I say, a lot of people thought, hey, th- this guy's going to have this great career ahead of him. He resigned abruptly after allegations from not one but two ex-wives circulated where they alleged the guy was um, emotionally abusive verbally abusive and in one case there's a picture of one of the wives who's got this big old black eye that she said you know she got when when he hit her 
initially there was a degree of denial about this, but then what happened is that's after one of the wives came forward. After both of the wives, ex-wives came forward, okay, it was tougher and tougher to deny this. After the picture surfaced, it became tougher and tougher to deny this. This Rob Porter was dating one of the spokespeople for the White House at the time, so that made it all the more complicated. And the fact that, again, he was viewed as a rising star. On Saturday... President Trump was apparently addressing the Porter situation, um, sending out a tweet saying that people's lives are being shattered and destroyed by mere allegations. Um, There is no recovery for someone falsely accused. Life and career are gone. Is there no such thing any longer as due process? And a number of people then interpreted that as uh, President Trump was saying, well, um, here's here's the deal. We've had to let this guy go. Um, he's resigned. Whether he was asked to or not, I don't know. But, you know, here here it is. You've got these unproven allegations, and it's ruining his life. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Live. Text line. Does this comment represent a sort of tone deafness when it comes to where we are in society nowadays with regard to allegations of spousal abuse. I mean, the president is right that, you know, allegations at this point in time can destroy people's careers. There's no question about it. At the same time, when you have not one, but two ex-wives who are coming forward and making claims, is this the guy that the president should have been trying to make this point on? 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1217. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, President Trump and his spokesperson, Kellyanne Conway, taking a lot of heat over the weekend for remarks that I think many people interpret as being defensive of a guy who um, there's some real serial, serious allegations about the fact that the guy was a domestic abuser. Let's start with Scott in New Berlin. Scott, you're first. Hello. Yeah, I think there is a lot of tone deafness. Um all the allegations that are just kind of dismissed by the White House and the White House staff, and then you add that these are people that are giving basically testimony to the FBI. I mean, there's legal there's legal consequences if you lie to the FBI, mm-hmm. and the chief of staff knew about it for a year. Uh, this White House has no issue, I guess, with giving people without clearances classified information. I. Mm-hmm. There's so much wrong with this story. Well, it's here, I mean, it's got, actually, I mean, I, I, I agree. Here, here's, I, I understand if President Trump, I, I understand one of the, the things that makes people uncomfortable is when somebody comes forward and says, you know, um, I haven't said anything, but 30 years ago, so-and-so did something to me. And, and then, you know, the person who is being accused let us assume for the sake of argument that they're not guilty. They always say, how do we defend ourselves? You know, this is this thing. It came out of the clear blue. It's 30 years old. I, I you know, I don't think this happened, but whatever. So, okay, th- that is one of the situations that occur. The other situation is somebody comes up and says, this person did it to 30 years ago, and they say, yeah, I, I, I did. But this, what's troubling about, to me, about the Rob Porter story, and which does represent some of this tone deafness, is, is these aren't new 
allegations. This isn't like you've got a disgruntled ex-wife from 25 years ago who comes forward and says, hey, this guy did this. This is stuff that has been out there for a, a while that is relatively current. And, of course, you've got two of the ex-wives. Now, maybe you say, oh, these ex-wives are just, you know, they're, they're cancers out there. They're just making this stuff up and they're lying. But these allegations have been out there for a while. One of the things that was holding up his FBI clearance was the fact that um, – that, that there were these allegations of spousal abuse, not just one spouse, but a second spouse. So you're right, Scott. This is something that was known to at least a lot of people in the White House about this guy who was the rising star, and they made the decision to go ahead and, and give him the job. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. I you know Who knows? Maybe these two ex-wives are vindictive and they're making it up. I, I, get, I admit I'm troubled when I see this photograph of, you know, one woman who's got this big black eye and, you know, all right, yes, did she fall down and hit a doorknob? I guess you can make that argument. But, you know, she says he hit her. And you look at this and it seems to be kind of compelling sort of stuff. But but regardless, I don't know what the truth is or not. But it does seem to me that this White House has a tone deafness where they go ahead and they say, OK, we're going to employ this man. And then, um, you know, regardless, until we've gotten to the bottom of what these allegations are. It would seem to me that you, you'd approach it the other way around. Again, when this doesn't come out of the clear blue, it's not like this is some surprise and it's somebody that's been working for you for 20 years and all of a sudden, gee, we, we can't believe these things were there. These allegations have been around for a while. And while I understand maybe what the president's trying to say about how the mere allegations can ruin a career, it doesn't strike me that Rob Porter is the guy that you're going to necessarily be using to make this particular uh, case. And again, I think this is one where the president hurts himself by deciding to put himself in the middle of it because it looks like he is trying to defend the indefensible. Do you want to say, gee, you know, I'm concerned that sometimes, you know, people's allegations can be ruined by reckless and false claims. Okay, fine. It doesn't necessarily strike me that this Rob Porter is the guy that you want to make that argument for. All right, big story number one. Big story number two, the Olympic Games are underway. NBC is taking some heat. We'll discuss. Stick around. It's 1224. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. They say when you find something you're good at, stick with it. At Mutual of Omaha, our something is listening. And we've been at it for more than 100 years. To us... Listening is a sign of respect, and as a mutual company, we listen only to our customers. Not to Wall Street, not to outside shareholders. We listen to you. And not in the waiting-for-our-turn-to-speak kind of way, but really listening. Only then, with an understanding of your wants and needs, can we recommend the insurance solution that's right for you. So, if you're looking for Medicare supplement, employee benefits, or life insurance, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 800-49-BEGIN or find an agent at mutualofomaha.com. Okay, that's probably enough talking. Time to get back to listening. Mutual of Omaha. We begin by listening. Mutual of Omaha Insurance Company and its affiliates, Omaha, Nebraska. 
Hi, I'm Judge Michael Scrannock, and I'm running for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, February 20th. I firmly believe our judges must uphold the rule of law by relying on the Constitution and the separation of powers, not by legislating from the bench. Unfortunately, my opponents don't share these views. They have openly criticized laws signed by Governor Walker that they disagree with and are campaigning as activists who will implement their policies from the bench. Join me February 20th and send a message that the job of judges is to uphold the rule of law and respect the Constitution. Paid for by Michael Scrannock for Justice. Hi, I'm Judge Michael Scrennock, the only judicial conservative running for Wisconsin Supreme Court February 20th. I need your support to make sure our highest court continues to uphold the rule of law and respect our Constitution. I was appointed to the bench by Governor Scott Walker, and I care deeply about the future of our state. There is just too much at stake not to cast your vote on February 20th. Everybody deserves the stability of a judicial branch that relies on our Constitution and the law. By voting for me on February 20th, that is exactly what you will get. Paid for by Michael Scrennock for Justice. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, this is very cool. Jackson Brown is on his 2018 acoustic tour, and he's making a stop in Milwaukee this summer, joined by special guest Greg Lees. I, I actually I saw Jackson Brown play at the Riverside a couple years ago. It was one of the better concerts I have been to. He was just absolutely great. Um, Brown, crisscrossing North America, he's going to play the Riverside Theater on Saturday night, June 16th. And, of course, I mean, how many great songs does Jackson Brown have? Keep listening to my show today and all this week. We're going to be giving you a daily chance to win a pair of tickets to the show. Today, we're going to be giving away a pair of tickets during the 2 o'clock hour. So it's going to be different every day, but you'll have a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Jackson Brown at the Riverside Theater. Like I say, I saw him there a couple of years ago. Absolutely great show in a great venue. All right, big story number two. The Olympics are underway. Gru, have you been watching the Olympics? You've been watching the Olympics. Okay, you're, you're into this. Um, the Olympics, because... The International Olympic Committee many times goes out of its way to decide to do everything it possibly can to mess over the United States, um, especially with the awarding of the games, despite the fact that it's NBC, you know, in the United States that bids and provides all the money for this. Um, you, you put it they put it in areas where the the tape delay means that the time difference means that you're not going to be seeing many events live. What's the difference? Is it 13 hours central time? So they're 13 hours ahead of us. I'm sorry, what, Eric? 15. 15, not 13. 15 hours ahead of us. So um, obviously, so 15 hours ahead of us, this would be it's now 2 in the morning out, out there. So that makes it very, very difficult to show live e- events. So what's happening is that they they do show a bunch of stuff live, but then for their prime time, they try to save the, the best stuff. Now, there's a controversy because this tape delay has really been causing all sorts of things. Now, obviously, not all the events are televised live, and that means that sometimes you're going to be finding a result before you see it on TV because it could have happened. Again, that, that's what the 15-hour time difference is. But one of the things happened is that when this American, Red Gerard, won the U.S.'s first medal of the Games in snowboard slope style, NBC didn't air it until about a half hour later. They could have chosen to show this live, but they decided to tape delay it. So you had all these people who were following this on on the Internet, and all of a sudden they're watching TV, they're following it on the Internet, and they thought they were watching it live, but they really weren't doing this. All right, the tape delay 
is necessary because of the time difference. Nevertheless, I think even especially for the big events, people want to watch the stuff live. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I like the Olympics. I love the Olympics. I love the spectacle of it. And it, it's just, to me, very, very cool to see all the different things that are going on. But the tape delay is a problem. Should the stuff be shown live? It's 1234. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Spring training begins this week, and there's a high level of optimism for the Milwaukee Brewers. So Greg Matzik asks, why is it that so many projections have the crew losing more games than a year ago? Greg walks through the details, 7.07 tonight during Sports Central. It's because the Milwaukee Brewers get no respect nationwide. That's it. All right. Um, NBC, the, the games, the Olympic Games have just started already. There's all sorts of controversy over the use of tape delay. We are 15, 16, 15 hours, I guess, ahead behind the, where the games are occurring. Now, actually, why that happens is just beyond me because, again, since normally it's the golden rule, whoever has the gold rules and the fact that you know NBC pays so much in right fees, you think that that would have a little more sway as to where the games occur, but that hasn't happened so far. So a lot of the stuff is being shown on TV on tape delay. What you can do is you can live stream it you know, on the computer. So if, you're, if something's going on at 2 o'clock in the morning and you care, I mean, you can watch it you know, live stream on your computer or on your desktop or, or whatever, your, your device. But if you want to watch it the conventional way on TV, a lot of the stuff is shown on tape delay, and there's been some miscues so far. Is tape delay ruining the Olympics? Tony on the northwest side. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hey, I don't mind tape delay. I watch it at night. enjoy it. However, last night at 1030 uh, on the news, Lance Allen blurted out that, that Jamie Anderson won the gold right when I wanted to stay up and watch it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but... My niece told me about the luge guy winning on Sunday morning, but when I watched it at night, I got then I got to concentrate on where the German guy made the mistake. So right. I don't mind. Right. Well, I think it's. I mean, think. I mean, it, it's part of it is the the reality that, that's out there, and and part of the problem that NBC has is first of all, you've got the the enormous time difference, which creates all sorts of problems. Secondly, you have the issue that sometimes you've got two events that are going on at once, and see that's what happened. I think with the snowboarding thing, they were in live coverage of figure skating, so you're in live coverage of figure skating on the main NBC network. Meanwhile, the snowboarding thing is going on. You can't cut away from figure skating. I mean, you can't show two different types of live events, I guess, unless you go to, like, the the box or whatever. That's that's not going to be available. And so the truth of the matter is I think that you have people who are going to have to turn. The reality is if you care about a particular event and you want to see it live, this is just where the technology is. You're going to just have to watch it online. And that's just kind of the bottom line. And I think more and more, the conventional TV stations, I think that's going to become sort of a highlight type of thing. You know, watch it in the evening for exactly what you were talking about, Tony. Hey, you know the results, but you want to go, okay, I know the American one or I know the German one. I want to see exactly what happened and go for it like that. I think. You know, NBC, there's just only so much they can do. And especially if you're saying, okay, I'm just going to watch the main NBC broadcast. Well, you're, you're kind of stuck because they're not going to go away from figure skating. That's a big deal. So you are going to miss some of these things. The answer to all this, though, is streaming. I mean, that's one of the things that's really 
you know, come into its own that wasn't available 15, 20 years ago if you watch the Olympics. The fact that now, you know, you can go and you can get that live stream. So if you want to watch the luge or whatever, you can watch the entire thing. And that's where the value is. All right. Big story number three. This has been percolating for a while. Um, it came to the fore because of a feature that was done on 60 Minutes last night. What? Let me see if I can back into this. If you have a Wisconsin driver's license, that driver's license issued by Wisconsin gives you the right to drive a car in any state. There's what they call reciprocity. Um, so if you're driving from, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, down to Fort Myers, Florida, all right, you drive through all those different states, you know, it, it's okay. Your driver's license is good. And if you get stopped for a speeding ticket or something, well, you got to pay the speeding fine. You, you might get points against your license sent back to Wisconsin. But your driver's license is good. It's recognized, a valid driver's license from Wisconsin is recognized as good all throughout the country. When it comes to concealed carry permits, that is not the case. There are some states that have very, very lax concealed carry rules. There are some states that have more stringent rules, and there are some states that don't allow concealed carry at all. So here's the question. Let's say you have a concealed carry permit from the state of Wisconsin, and you want to travel to New York City, and New York City, they their rules with regard to concealed carry are much different and much uh, stricter, let's say, than in Wisconsin. So the question becomes, what, what do you do? Should your Wisconsin concealed carry permit allow you to take a gun to New York City and allow you to carry a gun concealed when residents of, say, New York State wouldn't be able to do that? Well, that's precisely what's going on with a bill that is moving through Congress. Um, it was passed in the House of Representatives. It's now going over to the Senate, and it has 40 endorsers. It would be, a con- it's called the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act, which says that if you've got a valid concealed carry license from one state, that that should be good in all other states, even if some states don't allow concealed carry. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, driver's licenses, all right, that's that's fine. Driver's licenses, there's no problem. Your Wisconsin driver's license is good anywhere in the United States. From a criminal perspective, uh, pot is different. Pot, you know, possession of pot might be legal in Colorado, Possession of pot is not legal in the state of Wisconsin. So the fact that you are a Colorado resident who might regularly walk around with dope, with pot on you, you know, you come to Wisconsin and you're walking around with that same pot, you're going to be charged criminally. This bill would treat concealed carry permits in the same way that it treats, that we treat driver's licenses. Is this a good idea? And to me, this raises you know two issues. First of all, is the whole Second Amendment concept and the right to carry arms. But also, there, there's the states' rights things. Does you know does the state of New York, for example, have the right to say, all right, we're going to create, treat the concealed carry of firearms? 
different than the state of Mississippi does. Mississippi might have no problems for whatever reason with people walking around with concealed guns. We have a different concern. Should that state have the right to do that? 414-799-1620. What do you think? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and I might surprise some of you with this my take on this, but we'll discuss. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Jackson Brown. It's running on empty, one of my favorite Jackson Brown songs. He's on his 2018 acoustic tour. He's making a stop in Milwaukee this summer. Brown is crisscrossing North America. He's going to play the Riverside Theater on Saturday night, June 16th. I saw him at the Riverside a couple years ago. It was a tremendous show. Keep listening to my program today and all week. I'm going to be giving you a daily chance to win a pair of tickets to the show. We're going to give them away sometime in the 2 o'clock hour of today's show. Okay, if you're just tuning in, 60 Minutes was all over this yesterday. Um, typically, firearm laws, concealed carry laws, are handled state by state. For example, if you have a Wisconsin concealed carry permit, there is not, as a general rule, reciprocity. So that means if you go to a state that does not allow concealed carry, for example, um, you, your, your Wisconsin permit isn't good. Um, and so you can't carry a gun. If you get caught with a gun, you are in a lot of trouble. There is a law moving its way through um, the feds. It's been passed in the House. It's now in the Senate, which would say that a state doesn't have to offer you concealed carry. For example, Massachusetts doesn't have to have concealed carry for its residents. But if you've got a valid concealed carry permit from somewhere else, say Wisconsin, you can legally carry in that state even though residents of the state can't legally carry. And this is creating a lot of controversy. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Dave in Green Bay. Dave, you're first. Hello. Yes, Jeff. Uh, I'm an interstate truck driver, and I go to New York. I go to the, you know a lot of cities in the Midwest. Right. I've never carried a weapon in my truck in the 40-some years. I've been driving truck, and I do overnight in the industrial parks. I've slept in city streets in the Bronx. Uh, always a little funny about it. I know a lot of my friends that do drive that do drive truck. They carry regardless. Right. I've always not done it because I'm afraid of that one cop, the one officer in New York, and I go to jail in Rikers Island. <laughs> right. If, I, if if I could, I would. If do you, I could, I would. Do you think? Well, and I think a lot of people would say that. But I guess my question, Dave, would be: Do you think, for example, New York? has the right to say, hey, we don't want people carrying concealed firearms. Now, that might be a stupid policy, but if that's their policy, do you think they have the right to say that? Um, is this a state's rights matter? It's, I think they have the right because it's a state's rights matter. I do, but I mean, mm-hmm. for my own personal protection, and I know a lot of guys that carry and drive trucks. Right. And, they, 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 and, and you have, the police will tell you, even in New York, all they are is a cleanup crew. Right. That, that, that they're, they're going to come after the fact. Got it. And where I, where I park and I end up in some areas, industrial parks, a little bit scary. Well, sure, no. I mean, th- nice to see. And I don't, I, it's, I guess, I, I just, I see there as two issues. And, and you're talking to somebody who for years was one of the people that I, I like to think that, at least on the radio, is one of the leading advocates for Wisconsin adopting a rule that let law abiding citizens carry concealed firearms. I, I don't have a problem with it. And I think, you know, that for the people who said it's all, oh, it's going to be like the wild, wild west, I, I think those claims have been proven to be absolutely ridiculous. This is a different story, though. I mean, this is. This is does 
All right. Do we in Wisconsin, for example, let's say we didn't have concealed carry. Do we have the right to say these are the laws? And just because Mississippi has given you a a permit, does that mean that you have the right to carry this gun in Wisconsin when, under my scenario, law abiding Wisconsin citizens don't have the right to do it? Does a state have the right to set its own laws? Mark from Bristol sends me a text. Jeff, I love that you brought this up. I am a concealed carry holder, so uh, I also I travel nationally in a band. I have to go to some very rough cities in most parts of the country. I can carry freely, but certain states like New York, Massachusetts, and D.C. make it impossible. I fully support this, especially for people who do long national travel like myself or over-the-road truckers. You are susceptible to being robbed. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Tom in West Dallas. Hi, Tom. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Okay, should we have reciprocity? No, I don't think we should. I, I do have a conceal and carry permit for Wisconsin and obviously some other states. And I'm glad that we have it here, but I think it should be a state's choice, state by state. Does it make it too confusing? I mean, I, I guess what people would argue is that, hey, this this is a right. You have a Second Amendment right to carry firearms. Why should a state be able to restrict your right when you're not a citizen of that state? You, you know, that, that does come under a little gray area, but I, I believe the state should be able to make a choice, kind of like legalization of uh, marijuana. The, the same guidelines, more or less, that it, it should be equal across the board. If the state chooses not to do it, which I think is silly, right. but that's their choice to make. So I think you have to abide by that state's particular choice, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, see, Tom, I, I actually, and, and I suspect we're going to be in the minority on this one, but I, I agree with you. Without without talking about the wisdom of this i mean you know typically um you know firearms you you have you have criminal regulations here and i mean i think a given state should have the right to decide hey you know given our particular crime problem or whatever um we this is what our law is going to be with regard to possession of firearms and again i don't i don't think concealed carry holders contribute to the crime problem or anything like that but I, i guess i look at this like you do it kind of is a state's rights matter and the bottom line being all right if you're concerned about this just don't go to new york you mean you don't you know don't 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 travel to new york or don't travel to washington dc or if you do leave your gun at home i guess i just think these communities have the right to set their laws and and i agree with you and it's really not that difficult to find out which state you can and cannot carry if you went through the firearms class you're aware of it when you leave that day Right. Now, thanks for calling. Now, look, and I, in saying this, I appreciate that this creates problems. This creates problems for the long-haul truck drivers. This creates problems for people who, who travel on a regular basis. But I guess the bottom line is, for example, in Wisconsin, I, I don't, you know, we have certain rules with regard to concealed carry. Do you really want a situation where somebody who plays by different rules, you know, maybe much more liberal, maybe much less restrictions on background checks or whatever, you know, has the right to then bring their gun into Wisconsin. I guess that's how I, I want to look at it. Now, if you want to say that um, all, if all the concealed carry laws were uniform, and that's the same sort of requirements to get a gun and to keep a gun and the same sort of training thing, that might be a different story. I mean, that's why we have, well, again, even with the drinking age, for example, there's not a federal drinking age. There are individual state drinking ages. Now, the federal government 
by the way it gives out highway money, make sure that it's a 21-year-old drinking age. At 414-799-1620, is reciprocity a good idea? And believe me, I understand it would be more convenient for carry holders, but is it a good idea? Phil and Racine. Hi, Phil. You're on WTMJ. Hello. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's probably a better thing. Um, I, I went and got my concealed carry, well, about seven, eight years ago. Or, well, whenever it first started. Right. And I ended up getting one for Wisconsin. I got one for Arizona and one in Utah, just right. so that it would cover, like, 70% of the states. Right. You know, but Minnesota, Wisconsin will accept Minnesotas, but Minnesota won't accept Wisconsin. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, and Illinois won't accept anybody's. Right. And, uh, you know... Actually, when I got the, I think it's the Arizona one, or no, the Utah, you had to get fingerprinted and take a picture. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and you got to, you know, you got to pay each one. You know, it's not a lot. In fact, mine's just coming up for renewal in Wisconsin. It's twenty-two bucks. It's not like it's a killer or anything, right? You know, but I went and took. You know, everybody says, "Oh, you can just if you got a, you know, a hunter safety thing, you can go get it." Well, I thought, no. I mean. I had hundred safety, but I'd rather go and get the information. And then I ended up, I joined the, what is it, United States Concealed Carry that's right. up in Waukesha. Right. And they tell you, they give you a lot of information, you know, and stuff you can look online and, and get. But, I mean, I think it it would be, you know, like when I go to Illinois, i got to remember to take my gun out of my Right. No, and, and I understand. I mean, Phil, thank you. See, I understand it's a pain. See, I, I guess I, I understand it's a pain. But to, to me, and I'm not saying Illinois is smart in doing this or Minnesota is smart in doing this or, you know, New York City is smart in doing this. And I understand why this would be an incredible convenience for law-abiding citizens who have the permits. But I, I guess I still think when it comes to criminal matters, deciding what is a crime and what isn't, a state should have the right to decide, all right, are we going to allow concealed carry or or not? And under what circumstances? This law would sort of preempt, forget sort of, this law would preempt the right of a state to set its own rules. And again, it, it results in maybe theoretically, somebody who couldn't get a concealed carry permit in Wisconsin, but if they live in another state um, that has laxer rules, they would then be able to carry a gun in a concealed fashion when they came to Wisconsin. And if you think of that in terms of like that, it, it doesn't make any sense. If the rules were all the same, again, you might be able to make, I think, a stronger argument for reciprocity. But right now, the rules aren't all the same, and different states have different rules. Some are tougher, some are laxer. It's 1256. When we come back, well, a lot of good stuff coming up on today's program, including to tip or not to tip. Stick around. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 109, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Getting all these emails from people about the reciprocity issue. Look, I, I, I'm not arguing that it's wise to not allow people to carry concealed firearms. I'm an advocate for concealed carry. I'm just saying I think states have rights to do certain things. California, San Francisco is about ready to start these essentially subsidized shooting galleries where you can... If you choose, you can go in and as long as you've purchased your heroin somewhere else, you can get a clean needle, you can sit there, you can inject yourself with heroin 
um, all the while a nurse or a health professional watches you to make sure you don't overdose so that, you know, and then they can give you Narcan or, or whatever that might be. All right, now I think that is disastrous public policy, but would we argue that since you, they do that in San, in San Francisco, that means you should be able, if you're a San Francisco resident, to come here and do the same thing? No, I just, I, I think states have rights to say, just because some state does something doesn't mean that we have to allow people who come visit from that state to do it. All right. Um, Steve Scafidi had actually mentioned this. I, I think there's a bigger issue. I, I've actually had this worked up as a topic. Here, here is the, the story. Last Wednesday, there's this mega church in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and they're having this, this meeting, and they decide, okay, let's order out for food. So they call the local Outback Steakhouse. And they order 25 steak dinners, and they order 25 chicken dinners, and they order 25 um, side orders of potatoes. All right? Big order. Call it in. Total tab comes to 735 bucks. All right? So Outback says it'll be ready in an hour or whatever they say. So um, they send over, the church sends over somebody to pick up all the food, 25 steaks, 25 chicken dinners, and 25 sides of potatoes. Guy gets there, um, pulls into, apparently they have one of these things where there's a, you, you know, you can park outside and they bring out the food. All right, he gets there, they bring out the food. Waitress brings out the food, gives him, you know, all the food. He pays her the $735 and, and drives off. Okay, drives back. The waitress gets honked off because he didn't leave her a tip. And then what she does is she goes back and she posts on her Facebook page or social media or whatever, you know, about how she got stiffed by this particular church. You know, it was a takeout order. She came out. They just paid the 735 bucks. She goes on to say that um, she only received $18 in tip that day from other orders because she was so busy preparing the mega church's order. So she says, hey, I, I got screwed over. They didn't tip me. What cheap? You know what these people are here, and I want to go public with this. Well, Outback finds out about this, and Outback, first of all, they fire her. They say, we've got this rule that says that you know you're you're not allowed to go into social media and say bad things about our customers. So boom, you're gone. They call up the church. They say, hey, we're we're sorry that you know this all happened, and here we're going to comp your food. The church, for its part, says, well, we really didn't mean to create an issue here. You know, it's just there was a volunteer that we sent over to pick up the food, and he really didn't think. The larger issue, there is a larger issue to this though, and actually, it's been something we've been talking about off and on all morning around here, and, and that is. The question of tipping when you get takeout food. And I I, I admit, I, I like to think of myself as a reasonably decent tipper. I, I am. But I have to confess that when it comes to takeout food, I, it just the waitress apparently says that it's standard, or she thinks it's standard, that you know when you pick up something from takeout, for takeout, you, you should give a 15% tip. Huh. Now, I've been trying to think this through um, as somebody who regularly, I don't know, picks up takeout Chinese orders. I don't think I've ever tipped on on the Chinese food. And I'm, and I'm just wondering if I'm committing this faux pas. Now, I said to Steve Scafidi the other day, I, I stopped off at a, a pizza place on, on the way home. 
and I ordered a pizza and a order of garlic bread, and I sat at the bar and I had a beer and I ordered the food through the bartender, and you know, I had the beer and the, the bill was like thirty one dollars or whatever, and I gave her forty and I just to keep the change on that. And but but it wasn't. I didn't necessarily feel an obligation. If I had just walked in and said to the hostess, "Here, I'm here to pick up a, a pizza," it wouldn't have occurred to me to tip the hostess fifteen percent um, on on top of the pizza simply for going in the back, getting the pizza, and bringing it back. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, I, I have no sympathy for this particular employee. Um, the rules were you don't post stuff, so she ended up getting fired for for doing that. But but it was this outrage about they didn't tip her for for bringing the order out to the car. And her point was, well, I, I had to give up some other tables um, working to put this whole thing together. All right. I mean, is there an expectation as a general rule that you're going to tip on a carryout thing? Now, this was a little bit different because this is a massive order. But, I mean, are we supposed to be tipping on carry out orders. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And her point was it starts at 15% and then you go up from there. Do you do that? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 115. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 118. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, if you're just tuning in, here, here's the story that this mega church in Florida, they call up an Outback Steakhouse and they order $735 worth of food. The guy shows up to pick it up. He pays the 735 bucks. He doesn't tip the woman, the waitress, who comes out and delivers the, the food. But, but that's all she does. She delivers the food. At least, it's, uh, you know, she then gets really upset. She says, hey, you know, I lost out on a couple other tables because I had to put together this order and I didn't get tipped. She goes public with it. With it, Outback fires her. Well, the rules that Outback have says you don't go public. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not sorry for her about that. She violated those rules. It's this larger question. I mean, is there an expectation? She says if you're picking up carry out, you should automatically tip 15 percent and then go more than that. And I guess I've never I've never heard that. And I, occasionally I have tipped people on carryout, but certainly not. I haven't felt an obligation to, to tip 15 percent like you might if you're sitting at a table for an hour and 15 minutes and you have you know somebody that's bringing you the food and filling up your water glasses and taking your orders. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Stan in Burlington. Stan, hello. Hi there. Uh, Jeff, I have to agree with you on that. I never thought of tipping on a carryout. And I mean, that'd be like a $70 tip, and I'm sure everybody could have thrown in an extra buck here or there. But, I mean, like I said, like you said, they're not filling your water glasses. They're not um, explaining things on the menu or taking the different orders, things like that. Um, I don't know. That was an, it, it took an hour to prepare those meals. That sounds like a pretty big tip there for, for that. Well, right. I mean, she, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think that she, okay, she puts it together, I guess. But the cooks, don't the cooks put this together as well? I mean, I guess I... I just, I, it's never occurred to me. And again, I, I get carry out a lot. Like I say, if I'm sitting at the bar and somebody brings it, I, I will tip maybe like round up or something if I've had a beer. But every Chinese restaurant I've been in, it just never occurred to me. And I'm not trying to be a bad guy. It just never occurred to me when I say, hey, carry out for Wagner. And they say it's 45 bucks. It's never occurred to me to say, okay, I'm going to, here's an extra $10. I just, I've never done it. No. I agree with you. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think they build in some, uh, that, that cost is built into that food to pay for that the cook that prepared it and stuff. I'm sure. So. Yeah. Now, I mean, th- thanks for calling. Now, I mean, I do think, 
I mean, I see, I think this might be a bigger issue with Outback. If, for example, you have a server that, that's dedicated to, to doing all the carryout stuff, well, maybe they should be compensated a little bit differently um, as opposed to a tipped employee. I'm just saying, I is it a nice thing if somebody does it? Yeah, I just it's never I just never realized that that was an expectation. Is it an expectation? Okay, here's Mike who writes, Jeff. I like you. I consider myself to be a decent tipper. It's usually twenty percent, sometimes more when it's exceptional. I do tip at the drive-ins where they come to your car, mm-hmm. but I've never heard of paying a tip for carry-out food. Um, yeah, I guess that that that's it. You're right. I mean, I understand if somebody's well, I I just I what would you tip on something like that now? Honestly, that big an order, I would not have a problem if Outback, for example, put in a a minimum sort of gratuity because of the, for the time that it takes to put it together or some extra sort of service charge. I just I don't know that I would have expected to be I would have realized I was expected to be tipped. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Tim in Fredonia. Hi, Tim. Hey, Jeff, good afternoon. Happy Monday. Yes, sir. What do you think? Jeff, I'm going to go down the middle of the road here. First of all, yeah, she shouldn't have posted anything like that or a death against policy. Obviously, you're going to get terminated or at least reprimanded for something like that. Jeff, but I'm going to go to Wagner's rule. I'm not sure what number this okay. is. Okay. <laughs> Wagner's number rules. But, Jeff, is it the church's absolute right not to tip? Absolutely 100%. But, Jeff, is it the right thing to do on $735? Correct. Now, and I'm like you, Jeff. I go and order two fish fries. Feels thirty bucks, twenty, whatever it is, twenty-five bucks. Boom, I, and I'm in and out of there. Okay, right now, but I'm not ordering seven hundred and thirty-five dollars worth of stuff, Jeff. This takes mm-hmm. time to bag that up, get it all set. She probably did some of that. Mm-hmm. Now, is it the right thing to do, Jeff? Probably not. They, they couldn't have floated her an extra ten or fifteen bucks and made it seven. If you're spending seven thirty-five, well, you see, and the, and the, the church says that this was just a volunteer. He wasn't okay. thinking. They didn't really mean to stiff. Would you? you know, she says it should have been at least fifteen percent. Well, no, no, there she's high. Okay, she's right. smoking weed on that one. But a ten <laughs> or fifteen bucks, Jeff, yeah. is no big deal. I would have floated that to her now. One more thing, Jeff. I have a fish fry, and I sit down, and I'm having a beer, and my fish fries aren't ready for carryout yet. I'm going to float a couple bucks to yeah. the bartender. Absolutely. Uh, ab- right. Thank, I, I agree. No, thanks for saying I, I Like I said, that was my pizza example. I go in. I'm, sitting, I'm having a beer. I, I order the pizza. I'm waiting, and I'm going to typically I'm going to round up, you know. But I, do I necessarily – am I going to give the bartender 20% like I would probably give if I was sitting there at the table for an hour? No, I, I, I'm not. Um, okay, Amanda in Menominee Falls. Jeff, I was an employee at an Outback Steakhouse years ago, the one in Fox Point that is unfortunately no longer there. Yeah, it's always amazed to me that that one – Outback Steakhouse is never closed, and that one in Bayside or Fox Point did. Generally, the person working the to-go orders is norm- normally only working to-go orders. While they do make a different rate than the two thirty-three an hour normal restaurant servers make, an order of that size described really would take a good long time to package and prepare, so it's totally appropriate to tip for a to-go order like that one. The employee certainly did more than just bring out the order. For two-go orders, a tip is still a great idea, but perhaps not all. And again, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not against this. It's just, I'm just saying, it hasn't occurred to me it wouldn't occur to me that 15% on, on to-go orders, and I do think from a business perspective, you've got a lot of to-go business, and if you want to be fair to the employees, that's exactly right. You say, okay, Gru, you're the one that's handling the to-go orders today, and that means you're not waiting tables, so you're going to get $10 an hour because you're not getting the tips, but this is all that you're going to be able to do. 414-799-1620. Lori in Milwaukee. Lori, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there. What do you think? 
I agree with you. I think that's a good philosophy that you just had on the last call. But I do. I always tip on to-go orders because I worked in the industry for many years. And I, I don't always necessarily give 15 to 20 percent, but I always give them something. Mm-hmm. But on an order that big for that kind of money with all the time that it takes, I personally think that a tip should go half to the cook, half mm-hmm. to the waitress. How much would you have tipped on a, on, on, on a like 735 bucks? What do you think would be a reasonable tip? $735, I would have probably gave at least $25, $30 right. at least. Mm-hmm. And I would have gave half to the cooks, half to the waitress. Right. Because the cooks put a lot of time into that order, preparing it, getting it all together. Right. And she did probably help package it, did lose some other tables, like right. she said. And she did have to take it out to the car. Right, right. You at wouldn't have given, I mean, I'm trying to think, 15, 15% would be close to, you know, 100 bucks. You wouldn't have tipped that much. No, I don't think so. But right. I would have given each of them something at right. least. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. And I, I, and I think, no, and I think that's, I mean, thanks for calling. And I think that's fair. And it, and actually, the church, they, they say, look, we, we didn't mean to stiff her. I don't think this, so they figured that they were going to give her $100 or, or whatever. But I, they said this was just a volunteer, and he just wasn't thinking about this stuff. But it, it does kind of raise th- this issue. And, again, I, I appreciate how hard people in the hospitality industry work. And that's why I, I've always tried to be a decent tipper under most situations. But it is kind of, I, I will say this, in a typical in a typical pick up the food sort of situation, I, I don't think to tip on the carryout, particularly when I'm the one that's walking into the restaurant. You know, you, you walk in, hey, I've got the order. Now, an extremely large thing, I think it would have probably been a good idea, and I would have probably ended up doing it. In any event, um, something interesting to think about, and certainly food for thought for me now. Maybe maybe you need to start doing that. Um, it's 126. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One thirty-seven. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. After a successful trip out east, the Bucks are back at the BMO Harris Bradley Center Tuesday to open a brief homestand. First up, the Atlanta Hawks. Ted Davis and Dennis Krause hit the air six forty tomorrow night here on WTMJ. Okay, Gru, who's producing the show today, and always we are about ready to go where angels fear to tread. I mentioned this just briefly on the show Friday as the news was breaking, and. That in and of itself generated a ton of somewhat hostile emails. All right. Let me just back into this story for a moment. Um, I, I am a believer in vaccines. Oh, I can't believe you said that. I mean, I look at things like polio, which plagued earlier generations, and measles and mumps, which were essentially eradicated because of vaccines. What's happened is some of these diseases are making a return because parents are making the decision not to immunize their children. And I think some people are making that decision because they believe that, well, it's it's a common childhood disease. What's the problem? The kid gets sick. Well, part of the problem is we, we depend on like a herd mentality. That is everybody being vaccinated because what happens is there are some people who can't be vaccinated. So you have a healthy kid who gets the measles, then ex- is exposed to, say, a child with a compromised immune system who can't be vaccinated. That kid gets the measles and they end up dead. That's that's part of the problem. That's why you have a herd mentality. Some people just say, well, you know, we, we you know, it, it's a childhood disease. Who cares about measles? You know, who cares about mumps? You get over it. Everybody should, of course, care about polio. Um, 
the other thing that contributes is there is this belief that's out there that is fueled by a, a quote-unquote study that has now been completely and totally debunked that suggests that there might be some link to the vaccines that are given and to um, autism. You know, and that was fueled by certain Hollywood celebrities like Jenny McCarthy, you know, going on TV and saying, well, my child is autistic. I am convinced that it's because of the vaccine. And people see this and, and scientists say that's not the case. I mean, one study after another, the CDC says that's not the case. No, one study after another says this, this isn't true. But I understand there's some people who get into these conspiracy theories and say, well, you know, it's, it's really all, all of medical science is being bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies who want to push these diseases. Well, all right, with that backdrop, the, the woman, and she's not a doctor. Her name is Patricia McManus. The Milwaukee County, the Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee Health Department is a complete and total hot mess right now. You had the, the former director who was essentially fired because he, he screwed up on the, the whole lead in water issue. And then apparently they had like gag orders that prevented his employees from going to members of the common council or the mayor and telling them about, you know, some of the stuff that was going on. So you know, he's been fired. Um, the mayor wanted to bring back one of his cronies who'd been like a consultant. Common Council said no to that, and the Common Council has uh, selected Patricia McManus, who's been around for for a while. She's not a medical doctor. Instead, she's a registered nurse who has a doctorate in urban studies. Huh, okay. She's a registered nurse with a doctorate in urban studies. Huh, all right, she's going to lead the, the health department. All right. Um, and she's so, but she's been in the health industry for a long time. So she goes on an urban radio station on Friday and somebody, I don't know if it's from the host or whether it's a call, they ask her about vaccines. And her response is the science is still out on whether there's a link between some vaccines and autism. I don't think the answer is yet there. I mean, there's still some people who believe it, she says. And so I don't know. I think the science is still out. I think that's a decision that all these families are going to have to make on their own at this point, that the science is still out. Now, I understand that there are some people who still believe that there is a link between autism and these vaccines. But that doesn't mean that they're, that the science is still out on that. I mean, there's some people who believe the earth is flat. That doesn't mean that that's the case. So anyhow, she, she says that, and it creates this stir because you know the Milwaukee uh, the city of Milwaukee Health Department you know one of their roles is to go out and make sure kids get vaccinated so okay the journal sentinel to their credit they call her up and they ask her about this and and she starts saying some more she says i wasn't questioning the science hmm. i think clearly most public health people and most doctors in general believe that even if you have issues with it the best thing to do is still get an immunization she then added that um, she is not going anywhere telling people not to get immunized. Well, no, but she's telling people, I think the science is still out. Um, I would ask, I would like to have more research done on the whole issue in the first place, 
rather than just tying it to one thing because I'm not sure that's it, she said. It usually isn't, and I think that that's what happens when you try to nail it directly to one thing, such as the vaccine. I don't know what the hell that means. I, I just, I, I just, I just don't. But, I mean, obviously, one of the roles of the health commissioner is to promote vaccines because, as a matter of fact, state law says the kids are supposed to be vaccinated, although there are, are exceptions. All right, our numbers, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is fair, first of all, I mean, I think this is a conversation that is apparent you have with your, your pediatrician. Um, but, and I think it's, it's fair, perhaps, to question, all right, should kids be getting, you know, what is the timing of these various vaccinations? Should they be getting as many up front, or do you need to space it out differently? But I guess when I hear somebody who wants to, you know, to be the health commissioner, say that she has questions about the science and the jury is still out essentially on whether there's a link between these vaccines that take care of, that essentially eradicate measles, eradicate mumps, eradicate polio. And she says, well, I, I've got a question as to, you know, whether the jury's still out on this or whatever exactly she said. Is this, is this the type of attitude that the person who's going to be running the health department should have? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty, and I understand this is an incredibly emotional issue. But I guess unless you really, really, really believe that, for example, the Center for Disease Control and you know all the heads of all these different medical schools and officials at the National Institute of Health and on and on and on are, are lying to us in some effort to collude, I don't know, with the vaccine companies. I mean, is this really something that's debatable? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, and candidly, I don't know that there's any other public health official in the country who would aspire to a similar role that would ever say something like, well, I I think the jury is still out, and I think people need to decide on that. Um, No, I mean... The, the jury decided this. If the jury is going to be medical science, they decided this a long time ago. David and Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, David. Uh, you know, it's absolutely uh, pathetic. It's, it's disgusting because people have to realize before we had vaccines for a lot of these diseases, um, a lot of people died. A lot yep. of people got crippling diseases. Polio was all over the place. And now what's happening is, unfortunately, because of this new wave of anti-vaccination you're now seeing you know some kids that are are getting you know these diseases that we haven't seen in years yeah and unfortunately uh because of it we're all you know paying the piper for it because um you know once you get it it's i mean you're kind of out of luck i mean it's just crazy that well yeah i mean i guess i've just medicine to, to fix it and and they're saying otherwise. Well, right, especially, I mean, thanks to call, uh, David, especially a health professional. See, I mean, I, look, I, I, I understand, and, and look, this is an issue with parents. I, I get that. You know, you the last thing you want to do is, is take your child and expose your child to something that, that you know, could be, could be devastating moving forward. But 
I guess unless you really buy into this notion that the vaccine companies and the National Institute for Health and the Center for Disease Control and all these doctors, unless you really believe that they're all in the bag together, I mean, I think the science is very, very clear that there is no link. And the only studies that have come down with a link have been pretty much clearly discredited. And this ends up being this urban myth. I guess to me it is troubling, though, like I say, given as messed up as the Milwaukee um, City of Milwaukee Health Commission Health Department has been with all the other problems that you have you know, somebody who's about to take over that position who is a, a skeptic on vaccines because Lord knows, I mean, in the city of Milwaukee, I mean, it, that's the last thing you need is people routinely deciding to opt out of getting vaccines and bringing back, you know, measles or or mumps or, God forbid, polio or something like that to that community. And I guess I still don't even under, I mean, her response, I think, was troubling on the radio. And again, I don't even understand what she's telling the Journal Sentinel. I wasn't questioning the science. I clearly think most health people and most doctors believe um, that even if you have issues with it, the best thing to do is still get an immunization. That's hardly... Um, you know, that's hardly a, a ringing endorsement for this. She said she's not going anywhere telling people not to get immunized. Um, I would like to have more research done on the whole issue in the first place. Huh? Huh? I mean, really? I mean, come on. Let's talk to Sue in Germantown. Sue, you're on WTMJ. Hi there. Hi, Sue. Hey. Hi, how are you? I'm good. What do you think? I think that as Americans, we should exercise our responsibility, become informed and educated on these matters um, for the sake of future generations. Um, I think that includes researching who is funding, um, you know, the vaccine schedules. Um, mm-hmm. You're probably not going to like my feedback here, but no, from what I've read, um, doctors are they're given a uh, bonuses for as many children as they have vaccinated on schedule. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of incentivizing for doctors to get people vaccinated. Um, The U.S. leads the way in the world with having children vaccinated under the age of three. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other countries like in Europe where children aren't even vaccinated until after three years old. So I think, um, you know, looking at the U.S., we're, we're ranked number 35 as far as health in the whole world. Um, but we spend more money on medical dollars than many other countries. Well, so, so, so let me let me well, let me let me just stop you there. So thanks, thanks for calling. Look, and it's not that I, like, I, as I said, leading up to this. I think that there is a reasonable debate on on vaccination schedules. I mean, I understand some parents think that, you know, they, they give too much too early. Um, but that to me is different than being, you know, one of the anti-vac vaccinators. Um, because I mean, that's where, and again, I talk to the pediatricians and I, I understand exactly, I don't know about the dollars going to the doctors and things like that on the schedules, but I, I do understand there's legitimate issues about, are they being given too early and too, you know, that you combine them too much. I'll let smarter people than me figure that out. But I, I think this idea that if you give the vac- vaccinations, it leads to autism or something like that, that's, the, the science just doesn't support that. Here's a text. My daughter is finishing up her master's of public health and works at the CDC in Atlanta. She was horrified when she heard this story. She feels this is as big a story as the huge lead debacle. I, again, I, I mean, it just, I mean, are 
is the city of Milwaukee about to hire an anti-vaxxer for the health commission position? And if that's the case, maybe the Common Council needs to really kind of think this through. It's 151. This is Jeff Wagner. 158, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Look, I don't know if Donald Trump colluded with the Russians or not. I do know that this may be one of the greatest political dirty tricks ever, though. You have the FBI agents, Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, who staging emails about how they hate Trump, um, how they're looking for an insurance policy in the event that Trump wins the election. You have the FBI surveillance which is apparently done based on a guy who was being paid by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee to dig up evidence on Trump, and um, whether it was accurate or not didn't really matter. And the judges that approved the wiretap, you know, they they weren't told about this link. And then the revelations of the other day that apparently what happened, in addition to this character, uh, Christopher Steele, who was the disgraced, uh, again, spy, ex-spy, who's being paid to dig up dirt. Apparently, what happens is other Clinton loyalists, including Sidney Blumenthal, remember him, and another guy named Cody Shearer, they were also funneling dirt, unverified information about Trump, through this Christopher Steele that got included in this dossier. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I just, I almost hate to talk about this because it, sometimes people do things and they do them for attention. And then you, you just, you, you don't want to give them the attention because it just feeds the bad behavior. But this is kind of close to home. Paul Ryan, of course, the Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan is up for re-election this year as he is every uh, two years. He will win the Republican primary handily. And I understand that it's the Democrats' dream to bring him down, but he, he's he's not in any sort of danger. His challenger um, is his challenger in the Republican primary. We'll get to that in just a minute. His challenger in the overall election um, is a guy that's well got a ton of baggage, needless to say, and you know might get forty five percent of the vote if it's a wave election. But he's he's not going to beat Paul Ryan. That's just kind of the reality. His challenger in the Republican primary is this guy named Paul Nalen, who ran two years ago and got. 10, got 10,000 votes. I mean, just he, he lost 84 to 16%, but he got 10,000 votes, which makes you wonder who are these 10,000 people? And, you know, Nalen's been running this. I think it's it's clear that it's a racist sort of campaign, and I don't know that it's so much intended to defeat Paul Ryan as it is to call attention to himself and perhaps raise raise money um, his wife is on the payroll, or at least was at one point in time, according to you know financial records. But th- this Paul Nalen is is back again, and we you know we talked about him I think last week with regard to some anti-Semitic tweet that he sent out. Well, uh, he, he's back um, in the last couple of days. He, for reasons that pass understanding, decides to go after Meghan Markle. Do you know who she is? Um, crew. She's the 
she's the fiance of Britain's Prince Harry. And, you know, very smart, very accomplished, very attractive woman. Um, but, but she's taken all sorts of, of heat among racists across the world because of, of her race. So th- this, this Paul Nalen, this is almost an, an amazing sort of, this guy wants to be a, a congressman. Um, you know, what, what he does is he sends out a tweet where he he takes an image of this Meghan Markle when she's with Prince Harry, and he superimposes on that. And she's she's mixed race, and so there's again there's been some racists out there that have made an issue of this. He superimposes a, a dark skinned, <clears throat> an image of a dark skinned prehistoric Briton known as Cheddar Man, onto the, this woman's face, and you know then he he sends out a tweet. That has, you know, a, a particular caption with it. Honey, does this make my face look pale? All right. Then he sends this out. He sends this out. Now, this is a guy who's running against Paul Ryan for Congress. Did I say two years ago, 10,000 people voted for him? I mean, seriously, where are these people coming from? So the, the story then is after sending out this racist tweet, Twitter, Twitter bans him. At least. So Twitter says enough is enough here. So he's just put out, Nalen's just put out a press release. Yesterday, Twitter banned me from its platform. I am the second GOP congressional candidate within one month to be banned for lawful speech from a major social media platform. Uh, dot, 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 dot. This is the epitome of interfering with a federal election. Twitter is largely foreign owned and is partnered with the ADL, a pro-censorship extremist organization, that's the Anti-Defamation League, to suppress right-wing political speech. How in the world, how in the world is a tweet superimposing an image of a prehistoric, dark-skinned Briton over the face of Meghan Markle. How in the world is that suppressing right-wing political speech, I would ask? In addition, his his thing continues, we have reason to believe that because of the content of one of my recent controversial tweets, the British government may also be involved in this unlawful election interference by demanding Twitter suspend my account pursuant to its Orwellian hate speech laws. We will be filing a complaint with the Federal Election Commission in the coming days, alleging violations by the aforementioned parties of federal election laws and regulations, etc., etc., etc. I repeat again, who are the 10,000 people that voted for this guy in 2016? All right, when we come back, Governor Walker says sales tax holiday and child care tax credit. Is he on to something? Stick around. It's 213. This is Jeff Wagner. 217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we have a winner of the Jackson Brown tickets. We will be giving away a pair of tickets to the show sometime during the program every day this week. If you get a chance to see Jackson Brown, I encourage you to do it. He, of course, a lot of tunes, which are the soundtrack of many of our lives, and uh, he puts on a great show. I saw him at the Riverside a couple years ago. It was absolutely incredible. All right, late last week, Governor Walker announced a modified plan to deal with this budget surplus that we have as a result of uh, increased revenues and some cost-cutting measures, it turns out that there's some extra money sitting around. And what Governor Walker originally proposed doing is he proposed a, a, a child care rebate to parents of $100 per kids. He wanted to make that permanent. 
Now, a lot of people thought that was a good idea, but what happened is some people complained. They said, look, here's the problem. What if we don't have kids? You know, we're not getting any of that. Now, to me, I understood that concern, but in general, I thought, well, you know, when government takes more money than it needs, it's good to give that money back. And so I didn't have a problem with that, even though I don't have any eligible eligible children anyhow. But some people complained. So what the governor and the assembly did is they've come up with a modified idea. So here's the deal. It's going to be not a permanent $100 child tax rebate, but it's going to be a one-time only thing a one-time $100 per child tax rebate to parents so you get that benefit on top of that he's also saying all right here's what let's do let's do something to kind of encourage the economic encourage the economy encourage spending and help not just people with kids but help everybody so what he's proposing is a sales tax holiday um, the sales tax holiday would be a couple days. It would be August 4th and 5th, which would be you know right around the time that people are going in for like the back-to-school stuff. All consumers would be exempt from paying the state's 5% sales tax on all retail items in stores that cost $100 or less. So if you were buying some big-ticket item, well, you'd be out of luck. But again, if you're doing back-to-school shopping, it would benefit you. But still, if you're doing other sort of shopping as well, it would benefit you. More expensive items would still be taxed at a normal um, rate. All right, so this is an idea to say, okay, we're going to give some of this money back, and it's not exclusively going to be people with small children. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, there's many ways that you could go about trying to figure out how to give some money back. As a practical matter, you know, to, to write $25 checks to people probably isn't going to be something that's going to stimulate economic spending. On the other hand, $100 per kid tax rebates, that puts more money at least in the hands of parents who, you know, have all the other expenses you have with raising children. And for other people who say, well, why why should the parents get the benefits? The sales tax holiday, well, again, it could be used for back-to-school items, and it comes around at that time, but it's also, it could be used for anyone. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The Assembly is apparently on board with this. The Governor is on board with it. The Senate, at least, kind of uh, undecided right now. I think, like I say, there's lots of ways that you can get money back into the hands of Wisconsin taxpayers. But this one sounds like a pretty good way as well. And I will tell you, if they do something like this, I can easily see that sales tax holiday. I can see lots of people using it. I think it would be something that clearly might stimulate spending if you automatically get a 5% discount off the top on all your purchases. All right, is this a good idea? The Democrats are up in arms about this. They're saying, okay, this is just a, it's an effort to buy votes. This is just, they might as well just line people up at the polling place and give them $50 or give them $100 in cash. Well, all right, just because it's good for the economy and just because it's good for people doesn't mean it's vote buying. If it's good policy, why not do it? And if this gets more people spending more money, isn't that good for the economy? Okay, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, there's all sorts of ways that if you decided it was good policy to get money back into people's hands, this is, 
I, I think, one way that you can make sure that there is an across-the-board benefit. All right, should the legislature go along with this? My answer would be absolutely. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 222. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so the governor and the assembly have apparently uh, come to an agreement. We've got a surplus. Let's figure out a way to give it back to the people who paid it. $100 one-time child credit um, and a sales tax holiday for a couple days in August to promote spending. Let's start with Bill in Northern Illinois. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Last week, last week on the station, there was a great discussion about uh, the roads uh, needing fixing in Wisconsin. I travel up there frequently. Uh, the great the highways, the interstates are great around Milwaukee, Madison. They've done a good job. I'm sure some federal money went there. But the discussion was: should we have a gas tax in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. or or should we have tolling? And I, and that the roads, the roads, the secondary roads are not in good shape. I'm wondering if there's a surplus. Why would that not go towards the roads? Okay, Bill, first of all, I have to stop you. Do, you. do you realize how difficult it is for us who live in Wisconsin to be lectured on the quality of roads by guys from Illinois? Well, <laughs> I, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I'm, 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 I'm a Wisconsin native, and okay. I should, you know, there's not going to be a surplus in Illinois, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> I do love Wisconsin, and, and I'm, I hate to see the roads go down for safety and a number of things. But gosh, if there's extra money... right. Maybe that's where it ought to go. Well, and I I, I appreciate that. See, this is like anything. Whenever you can always have these discussions now, and and it is actually a discussion that we're going to have to have moving forward about where – where the money is going to come from and for, for roads. And we were talking about, do you do a tolling? Do you do it with a gas tax increase? All those different types of things. I think the idea of it, but what we're trying to do with this particular surplus isn't to pick priorities. It's rather to say, all right, the taxpayers have paid too much money in. We, we have too much money that we have collected from the taxpayers. Um, and keep in mind, you know, roads are generally paid for out of debt as specialized funds. I mean, it comes from the registration fees. It comes from um, the, the gas tax. This would be effectively, if you were to do what you would talk about, and I understand the roads need work, but what we would essentially be doing is we would be raiding the general funds. We'd be taking money that came from some other source other than, uh, again, where the road payments are supposed to be, and we would be using it to, you know, booster the transportation fund. And that's something that uh, politicians have done for years and years and in general has been criticized by people like me and lots of other folks. I think that what you want to do is you want to do everything you can to get the dough back into the hands of people who could then spend it. Now, I have an interesting uh, email from someone who says it's a bad idea. Businesses will have to reprogram their computer system uh, for just a couple days. Who's going to pay for all the hassle and the screw-ups, programming issues, then undo it in a few days? That's the small business. I don't know. I mean, I... I don't know. I'm not sure I necessarily buy that. I mean, I think that this is something that, you know, most of these stores would be able to figure out a way to do, and it's got the potential to stimulate the economy. Now, I understand for some people to simply say, all right, if you got 5% off, that would not be enough to motivate you just solely to shop. Here's what I think I could easily see happening, though. I could see a lot of stores, matter of fact, if you were a smart businessman or businesswoman, I could see people coupling the sales tax rebate 
um, or the sales tax holiday with certain giveaways or gimmicks or whatever themselves where you reduce the price of items. Hey, let's have a Black Friday in August. Here's what we're going to do on certain items. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't apply to the big ticket types of things, only purchases under $100. But what it would do is I could see a deal saying, hey, you get 5% off the start. You know, we'll knock 10% off this, that, or the other thing. You know, pretty soon you have enough money that's incentivizing people to go out. But but regardless of that, I just think it's a philosophical thing. If you've paid too much money to the government, I think it is the right thing to do for the government to give you some of that money back. And, and like I say, it's not like they're in a position where they can write every single taxpayer you know, a check for $250. There, there's not that much money that's there. But this is a way to at least get it into the hands of some of the people who did it. And I think that there is... I guess I think that there is an advantage to that. There's other ways, and I guess there's other things you could spend the money on, and there's other ways you could get money back into the hands of consumers. But this strikes me as being an easy and an effective way of doing that. All right, when we come back, controversies about barking dogs in Madison and the new Peter Rabbit movie. Stick with me on this one. It's being boycotted because some people are thinking there's allergy shaming going on. Is this political correctness run amok? It's an amazing story, and I will share it with you next. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, insensitive or political correctness run amok. Uh, Last weekend, now, Gru, who's producing the show, you probably did not go to see the Peter Rabbit movie. You did not. All right. Well, all right. You didn't have kids. Um, Peter Rabbit. There's a new Peter Rabbit, kind of a, a live action sort of quasi animation thing that that came out. Um, it actually exceeded expectations. It did twenty five million dollars in in box office, which was better than than people thought it was going to do. Um, it was second this week, I think, to uh, the. 50 whatever shades of whatever the kind of the the, tri- the end of the trilogy and that bondage thing. So but but Peter Rabbit came out. So Peter Rabbit, if you're not familiar with with Peter Rabbit, it's it's based on tales from Beatrix Potter um and it's a children's book and the story essentially is Peter Rabbit and his three sisters, Flopsy, Mopsy and Cottontail. Um are hanging out in this vegetable garden of, of Mr. McGregor. That's the thing. Well, what ends up happening is that um, in the in the film, uh, Mr. McGregor passes away, and his nephew, the evil Tom, comes to oversee the vegetable patch and then decides, I've got these rabbits that are eating my vegetables, and I want to kill them. So that's the, it's a kid's movie, but this is the thing. You've got the evil Tom who is trying to exterminate Peter Rabbit and his sweet family. Right, so that's what the movie is about. It's kind of like, um, oh, the Roadrunner cartoons, you know, where Wile E. Coyote always tried to kill the Roadrunner and just always just always completely failed. That's it. So it's kind of that, that basic premise. And again, it's sort of a kid's movie. People kind of like it. All right. Well, you might say, Jeff, why are we talking about this, and what is the controversy? Well, okay, Tom, that's the that's the villain of the film, um, <clears throat> who the audience and Peter Rabbit learns apparently he has an allergy to blackberries, so he's got a food allergy. Now, this is the villain of the piece that is trying to kill the rabbits. 
All right, in one scene in the movie. Now, did I mention that this is a movie? Did I mention that we've got talking rabbits? All right, this is a movie. All right, um, in one scene, the rabbits throw blackberries. Now, he's allergic to blackberries at Tom, and one lands in his mouth. All right, as a result of ingesting the blackberry um, thrown by the animated rabbits, all right, Tom goes into anaphylactic shock and turns red and then has to stab himself with an EpiPen. EpiPen. All right, so guy's got this food allergy. The rabbits that he is trying to kill learn about this. They throw blackberries at him during one scene, and he swallows one and has to inject himself with the EpiPen. I am told that I have not seen the movie myself. I was doing other things this weekend. But I am told that it's all done in a very kind of cartoonish comic book sort of style. Oh, did I mention, you know, you've got sort of animated rabbits, okay, that talk. All right, so that's it. So you might say, okay, Jeff, what's the big deal? Well, apparently... There is all sorts of pressure brought on Sony, which has now caused Sony to apologize because parents who have children with um, food allergies have apparently become extremely offended. Allergies are often not taken seriously enough. To have them trivialized on the big screen by such a popular character is immensely disappointing. So people in the U.K. thinking about boycotting this. Uh, Somebody else says, making light of this condition hurts our members. This would be a group for people with food allergies because it encourages the public not to take the risk of allergic reactions seriously. And this cavalier attitude may make them act in ways that could put an allergic person in danger. So in other words, because you go to see the movie Peter Rabbit that features computer-generated rabbits that talk, um, who pelt this guy with blackberries, that could cause people to, I don't know, put allergic people in danger. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, don't get me wrong. I am in no way, shape, or form downplaying people who have, you know, different types of food allergies. One of my oldest and dearest friends growing up who passed away a year or two ago, um, he, he had an allergy to 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 nuts, the kind that uh, grew on trees. He could eat peanuts because they grew on the ground, but the kind that grew on trees, he had an allergic reaction to them. I was with him on two occasions where he ingested them by accident. It was not a pretty sight. So I understand food allergies are a big thing. But at the same time, this is a movie. There, There is a, a character, kind of a cartoonist, cartoonish comic book character who is trying to kill the animated rab- animated talking rabbits. I mean, is this really something that Sony needs to be apologizing for? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, if you're just tuning in, a, a children's movie just opened up over the weekend called Peter Rabbit based on the, the Beatrix Potter stories. Did $25 million in box office. It features computer-generated talking rabbits who are the villain of the piece is this character named Tom who runs the vegetable patch and he's trying to kill the rabbits and the rabbits are trying to respond. My sense is it's a movie kind of like the old Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote things and, um, you know, some of those type of things where people, you know, it's all this over-the-top kind of cartoonish type of stuff. Um, Apparently in one scene, Tom 
the bad guy, has a food allergy, and the rabbits throw blackberries at him and eats one and has a comic book kind of reaction and has to jam himself with an EpiPen. And now all these people who are advocates for food allergies are appalled, demanding an apology. Hey, they're minimizing this. Okay, did I mention it's a movie with computer-generated talking rabbits? Trisha in Franklin. Trisha, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Uh, my note says you saw the movie. I did. I took my kids on Friday night, and I didn't have any idea about this controversy. Right. And my daughter is seven, and she has a severe peanut allergy and actually has to have an EpiPen wherever we go. Um, I never was offended by what was going on with the allergies, and actually in one scene he has to use his EpiPen on himself, and she was sitting next to me, and I kind of whispered to her, hey, did you see that he had to use his EpiPen? Right. And she said, yeah, and I said, and he's okay. And I thought that it was kind of empowering, actually. Really? Okay. Because I, uh, you don't ever see anything like that, although we practice it and we watch videos and whatnot, but he used his EpiPen, and he was okay. And I thought that was kind of a good message for her to see. Right, and, and you didn't get the sense that this was mocking people. You, you didn't walk out thinking, oh, my gosh, they've just done this scene that, that mocks my daughter's situation. Not at all. And I did ask my husband later because um, I have recommended the movie to, I recommended the movie to my mother to take um, her other granddaughter to. Right. And when she came back, she said that there's all this controversy about the allergies. And <laughs> what do you, um, were you offended? And I said, oh, I didn't even think about it. <laughs> yeah, my right. husband said that he kind of, kind of thought about, oh, you know, maybe they need to be a little careful with that message, but it wasn't even anything that I thought about twice. Right. And um, I just said to my mom, you know, I guess we didn't overanalyze it. We went, we saw a movie, we thought it was funny, and that's it. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, and it's it's also, my, my sense is, now again, I haven't seen this, but my sense is it's kind of a cartoonish type of thing. I understand it's not a cartoon, but it's computer-generated talking rabbits, you know, with, with the bad, kind of like, kind of like a Home Alone sort of thing, right? Where you've got, like, the over-the-top villains, and you've got the kid yeah. and all. That's what this is, right? Yes, yeah, a lot of slapstick yeah. humor and just kind of silly. Um, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah, 414-799-1620, and I guess that's... I, I look. I, I understand. There, food allergies are nothing to be mocked. I, I get that, but in the context, this is. I mean, think about the movie Home Alone. That's kind of this great, great example where you have the the Joe Pesci character and his partner. You know, they're trying to break in, and think of all the stuff that that's happening to them. You know, the kids like dropping hot water on them or, or coal or hitting them in the head with irons and things like that. Okay, it's slapstick. It It's a movie, for goodness sake. Um, let's see. Uh, Katie in Burlington. Hi, Katie. Hi there. My son has aller- aller- food allergies. They're not anaphylactic or life Right. But um, I really wish people spend less energy being emotionally overly sensitive to a movie that really doesn't change everyday common practices regarding food allergies and put more energy into <laughs> being advocates for themselves in restaurants like I've had to be and right. do an on-the-spot education of, no, you can't say you serve a gluten-free pizza when you're preparing it on the same that you're preparing a gluten crust. Or you can't say these chips appetizers are gluten-free, but yet you're frying them in a fryer that has other gluten. That's kind right. of stuff that happens every day. And that's where I choose to put my energy because I have to be my son's advocate. And these people are not going to be swayed to practice better or worse allergy practices because of an animated movie. It's re- 
ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, right. I mean, it, I think to me, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, th- this is a real issue for kids. But I mean, the people that are upset by this type of stuff, it, it's a cartoon. It's a comic thing. Now, thanks for calling, Katie. And, and again, it's it's all a matter of of perspective at the end of the day, isn't it? I mean, it's a he's a villain. He's a you know, it's it's a comic strip kind of villain uh let's see peter rabbit here's a text peter rabbit is rated pg huh meaning parental guidance uh, probably because the bad guy is trying to kill the rabbits and the rabbits are trying to respond all right so that's but peter rabbit probably comic book violence is probably what this would be peter rabbit is rated pg meaning parental guidance if you don't want your child to see it be a parent and guide them to another movie not sony's job to raise children uh yeah that's kind of that's kind of it. Uh, Rocky says, people need to lighten up. It's just a cartoon movie. Good uh, grief. Another text. Big Bang Theory had one with an allergic reaction to nuts. Nobody complained. Let's talk to Rob in Franklin. Rob, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Oh, hey, Jeff. I kind of uh, agree with your other callers to a certain extent. Um, I think boycotting a movie, a children's movie that's a cartoon, seems a bit ridiculous. But I, I also am glad this is being brought to the discussion. You know, I have a child with severe anaphylaxis, food allergies, um, that could actually kill him. Right. Um, and he's two years old. So I, every time I get a phone call from his preschool, I'm concerned um, that someone, he could be dead, he could be in the hospital. Um, we had a, a near scare last week um, that it can be really scary for us. Um, and I never thought about this until we actually first diagnosed him. But the one point I want to make that I don't think anyone else brought up is that I think one in four kids actually um, has severe teasing uh, with allergies. I've heard anecdotal reports or stories of other parents where their kids are, I mean, older than my son is two, but I've heard reports of kids teasing. Like, I don't know exactly what, but let's say you're allergic to peanuts and them teasing you and threatening you with peanuts and right. peanuts up to you. They have right. to touch you. And so, like, just like, you know, we see violence in the in the news, kids can emulate violence. And there's some theory that we see that that's how things might be more violent. I worry that kids, you know, maybe not two and three, but kids who are a little older who might see that might emulate. Hey, maybe I should tease Johnny over there because he's got that allergy. And so they might emulate that. Not that they would do it, at least I hope they wouldn't. Yeah. But that's my very concern with that. Well, and, I, and I understand what you're saying, but I guess, you know, you, you watch you watch the movie like Home Alone or you watch, you know, the Roadrunner cartoons and stuff. Are, are we concerned that... I don't know if somebody's going to drop a, an iron off a second floor and try to hit their their kid brother with it because they see it happens in a cartoon. I guess I, I understand where you're coming from, but but how how far do you carry this? Yeah, I, I, an iron or like the Wiley Coyote movies when I was a kid growing up. I think that almost to a certain extent. But for me, this just hits real close sure. to home. Like just last week, we had that scare. Oh yeah, and no, and like, like I said, leading into this, Rob, my, my my one of my oldest and dearest friends who passed away two years ago, you know, not a not a food allergy, but he he had this nut allergy, and I I remember twice he had eaten desserts and he didn't realize there were like walnuts or something in it, and it was scary. I mean, we're heading for the emergency room because you know he just can't breathe. It it's it's nothing to mess around with. Hey, thanks for calling. I do appreciate it, and, I, and again, I'm not trying to minimize it, but it's I I think. Sometimes, and I think I agree with our caller, Katie, you know, who it's, it's sometimes, I mean, let's, let's concentrate on the real stuff. Um, you know, is, I, I don't know, because you've got animated rabbits that are throwing blueberries or blackberries at, at somebody, that, does that mean that, that all of a sudden we're going to minimize, you know, the food allergies? And I think sometimes it, it just ends up, it ends up going way too far. Speaking of going way too far, before we bring in John McCure, there, 
just you know, NBC is doing a real good job with some stuff and not a great job with, with others. This this commentator, this analyst, his name is Joshua Cooper Ramo. Crew, did you hear about the controversy involving the opening night of the Olympics? All right, now back in in World War II, Japan occupied Korea. Think like Nazi Germany occupying France. They came over, they took over the country and treated treated people in Korea in a very, very brutal, brutal fashion. All right, so um, during the, this parade of, of nations, uh, this the analyst, this Joshua Cooper Ramo, says, every Korean will tell you that Japan is a cultural and technical and economic example that has been so important to their own transformation. Okay, uh, again, from 1910 to 1945, um, Japan occupied Korea. And I don't think any Koreans feel that as an occupied country, this is, you know, Japan is to be emulated. Anyhow, the NBC had to apologize, and uh, they ended up pulling this guy off all the coverage, to which I would lump into this category of thinking, what was he thinking, for goodness sakes? All right, it's 2.53. We're back to find out what John McCure, Melissa Barkley, Greg Matzik have on their minds. Please stick around. This is Jeff Wagner.